All right. Well, welcome again. If you would take your Bibles and turn there to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're entering into a new section now, chapter 5, uh, going through chapter 8 is a brand new section that really highlights the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We've seen from the very beginning, from chapter 1 on through 4, that there's no hope apart from the atonement of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in chapters 5 through 8 um, the predominance of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. We've seen our, uh, the foundation of the Christian life uh, fully explained, especially by the end of chapter 4. It's, it's by the death of His Son, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, and His resurrection that we have uh, life and immortality. And now we see from chapter 5 through 8, how this life will be lived out in the power of the Holy Spirit and the strength of the assurance He provides. And then when we get to chapters 9 through 11, we largely see uh, the God of the Holy Scriptures, uh, the One who is completely sovereign over all things, is displayed there for our confidence and our hope, knowing that the Word of God will not fail. And then the practical portion through the end of book 12 through uh, the end of the, of the letter to the Romans. So you're getting an idea of the outline uh, of where it falls and <clears throat> it develops as, of course, I come to understand it and share with you uh, because it's <clears throat> actually, some would take chapter 5 and put it in the previous section. But if we see what he said at the very beginning, that this gospel is the gospel of God, meaning it is the gospel of God, <clears throat> God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's a, a Trinitarian message whereby we have our hope in God and not in ourselves. <clears throat> I'm going to read the first two verses and, and uh, uh, realistically, we'll see if we get through the first. But we'll look at the first two verses here as it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is God's Word, Christ's Word, for His future kings and queens. Amen. We look at this text, and I want to highlight it under a big heading. And if we only cover one verse... Uh, we'll have to change the title by the time I post it. But I would call this, and with some help to Martin Lloyd-Jones who helped me see it, uh, the unshakable certainty of justification. You know, one thing you have to be absolutely nailed down on and absolutely certain about is the doctrine of justification by faith. That's what the whole uh, series of words has led up to in chapter 4, that there is only one way for all people... Jew and Gentile through all time to be saved, and that is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see things far more clearly than those who have gone before the coming of Christ, but nonetheless, they had enough information and enough accountability to God's law from heaven or from the very written law itself to bear witness that salvation is by none other than faith in the coming one. And that one has come. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of glory. He's revealed Himself very plainly to all humanity. And we see that now um, he's, not, he's not winking simply at uh, people's 
uh, sin per se, but He calls men everywhere to repent. It's absolutely clear that men, women, boys, and girls of all nations, of all people, Jew and Gentile, um, are to put their faith in the Lord to be saved. There's no other religion. There's no other way. There's no other means by which man can have peace with God without the Lord Jesus Christ. Any religion that says there's another way is a false religion. And that's before the cross, and it's especially very, very clear after the cross. Um, So it's established that in verse 25 of the previous chapter, He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. And we learned that that resurrection is not merely a testimony of His deity, but it's actually part of the gospel that without the resurrection, we would still be dead in our sins. He had to rise from the grave. And it is by His death and by His life that we are saved. So we enter into the therefore. We often think of Romans, we think we're waiting for the therefore in chapter 12. But this therefore is one of the most important therefores in the entire book because it's an indication uh, and a reminder that people go into all sorts of errors by missing this therefore. Um, In fact, it's the historical indicative if if those who know their grammar, a historical statement is called an indicative in the grammar. There's actually four forms, four major forms. I think there's six total. But if you were to just lay it out, in gospel preaching especially, you'll hear the historical indicative is what you hear when you hear someone proclaim the gospel. They say, Jesus Christ died for sinners and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures and appeared to 500 witnesses, and so forth. It is a historical fact. It's an indicative um, in the grammar. It is something that has happened and is completed. Now, what you often hear too, though, is when the uh, preaching of the gospel is taking place, that there are often commands. Those are imperatives. And it's, it's the point where saying, you must do this. You must uh, obey the Lord. You must uh, repent of your sins and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's imperative that you do. Um, <clears throat> there's the interrogative, which means there's a question. Have you? Have you repented of your sins and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's a figure, figure in the uh, grammatical uh, term. The interrogative, a question. Um, <clears throat> and then there's a subjunctive, which means a maybe. If you... Uh, It might be put in the form of conditions and such, but it might be a wish, a blessing. It might be something like, let us, let us follow the Lord with whole hearts. This would be the, it's not a a fact yet. It's an invitation. It's It's a desire. It's a wish. Bless the people of God that we may follow Him more closely today would be that subjunctive idea. Now I share all that not in vain because the grammar here matters because it's based on this very grammar that, as Lloyd-Jones indicates, that people go wrong. Because without this indicative, um, without this historical fact uh, being in the mindset, then what could very well happen is you go on simply thinking you must earn your way to heaven or you must earn your way to peace with God. Or you must do something in order to gain God's favor. But there's no imperative in this. It is because of this, therefore, and it's going to state facts 
Um, some of these words are in the perfect tense, meaning that they have a condition that has resulted that goes on forever with effects in the Christian faith. In these first two verses, that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing he's not speaking in a, a subjunctive, though you may find, depending on the translation you have before you, that there is some discrepancy about the idea of let us have peace or we have peace. And let me explain that just a moment. There's the difference between literally a long O and a short O. That's how much of a a little minuscule difference this makes in it. And the manuscriptural evidence um, appears to be, uh, by majority I understand, on the side of this subjunctive idea. But there are oftentimes uh, principles in translating, principles in examining the manuscripts of the New Testament. And those who are into that, and that's their their focus, their entire dedication, um, one of the rules that they keep is they, they usually go with the hardest reading. And the reason they do that is because usually the hardest reading and the most ancient reading is the correct one. And another way to prove it is the case that it's not a, a let us, but we have peace, is the context. The context of this uh, saying, since we have been justified by faith, and you go on to read um, perfect tense after perfect tense, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him we have, we have obtained and we stand, and we rejoice. And if you keep going down, there's no lack of certainty about the language. And therefore, the context itself lends to solve the manuscript problem. And so we admit that there is one, but we know how to solve it. The most ancient documents are the ones that we would rely on, the harder reading we would rely on, and also, ultimately, context becomes the king in making uh, the final solution as to what actually the Word of God says here. So we have a certainty even about what we're faced here. Now, why would God do something like that? Why would God permit in His sovereignty and providence for there to be even some question as to the case and the mood here? And I think it's this. It's to help us have more certainty. It's to help us to work out what we really believe and why we believe it and to have to really study His Word to show ourselves approved, handling it rightly, and to be able to rightly interpret Scripture. I think that there's a a sense, um, and there is every week for me, a romance in the study of the Word. The things that we discover week in and week out that builds the faith and edifies the people and, and makes us see who God is and makes us see things like the subject of justification and all of its glory better had we been just handed it um, just without having to work for it, right? So we work and labor to understand these things that have been done for us in the gospel and they stick to us because God has planned every matter under the sun so that we would enjoy Him. And so uh, the work of this is good, to study, to show ourselves approved, to rightly handle, to to seek out what does God's Word say here, actually, because we have a responsibility to get it right. And so we have, uh, back to the therefore, 
We'll get to that. We have peace, but I want to go ahead and explain that. Therefore, what, why does this make such a difference? Well, when you have this idea of the accomplished work of Christ, the accomplished work not merely of Christ, but of your justification in Him, meaning the blessings that are promised here, like we'll see in Psalm 1 tonight, there's conditions. And the condition is, are you justified? Have you been justified by His blood? And if you have, if you have by faith in Him alone, then what takes place in the writing here of chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 and so forth is yours in Christ Jesus. It belongs to you. It's a fact that belongs to you as God's beloved children. God's children in whom He loves without fail. God's children who He has in, the, in His arms throughout life and even unto death. In other words, nothing the world uh, can give or nothing that um, life could give and nothing death could take can change the matter about God's love. And chapters 5 through 8 form a unit. If you, if you know chapter 8, it's the place you go when you're really downcast, depressed. I'd like to change it to where you go to chapter 5 and 8 because this whole section forms this main argument. It's talking about there's absolutely nothing that can shake you as a believer out of the justification He has wrought in His Son by faith alone. Uh, chapter 5 through 8 is a, is a treatise, if you will, in itself that's exclaiming the Spirit's work sealing you to the day of redemption will not fail. Nothing is going to change your status with the Lord. Your relationship with the Lord is secure. And if we were to go on to the verses 3 through 5, you'll see there's brought into it, well, what about this? What about sufferings? Is that going to, unsha- is that going to shake you? We'll look at that separate, but, but that's the, the flow of thought. It's saying it's completely an unshakable certainty, this justification by faith. And nothing can shake you out of it. Nothing can, can uh, take you out of this glorious work of God in justifying you. And, and then it goes on to explain really how that's the case in arguing from a greater to a lesser. It indicates that Christ died for you while you were an enemy. You were an enemy of God. So if He died for you while you were an enemy of God and now you've been brought into friendship and reconciliation with the Lord, there can't possibly be anything between that point of justification and any point on the spiritual spectrum of achievement or failure that's going to change the security that He has wrought in His Son and by His Spirit. He's arguing from greater to lesser. That's going to deserve its own time spent in in studying that part. And then, the most difficult part of the text in 5 is chapter 5, 12 through the end. But what he's doing there is he's giving the whole basis historically as to how this has been wrought for you and for me. He goes into chapter 6 and he's dealing with objections. Chapter 6 and 7, the objection is, well, if this is so certain, if this is so unshakable, then why don't we just go on and sin so grace could abound? And he's addressing the issue of antinomianism, meaning against the law, that the idea that anybody who would understand justification by faith would simply take advantage of that 
by going on to live how, how sinners would want to live. I mean, the whole difference is that you have been changed. You don't want to live that way. And, and he's, he'll explain in chapter 6 uh, the answer to that rejection. In chapter 7, he'll detail his own struggle with sin and display that into a glorious landscape into chapter 8 where there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Some people would say, why do he write chapter, chapter 5 if he wrote chapter 8? And the reason is because of chapter 7. Chapter 7, if you look at Paul's struggle, it's a place where people go when they're really struggling, they're doubting. And you know, here's the thing. Um, we should really not be too much concerned when we or others have doubts and struggles, especially when we sin. We, sh- we, should, we should be questioning where we are with the Lord at that moment and asking, are we right with God and seeking the assurance that the Lord gives in the cross. But, um, you know, the ones we need to be weary of are the ones who profess they have, they have no struggles. They have no times of downcast. They have no doubts. I think, I think, biblically speaking, that's not the type of Christian religion we see in the Bible. Um, and so chapter 7 gives us a real picture of the struggle that man has within, the war within. And by the end of it, chapter 8 comes back around and reinforces everything in chapter 5. So if you have that in mind, you're going to see that through chapter 5 and 8, it's, it's some of the most, if not the most glorious doctrinal explanations of the power of the Christian life available to us. And it's a place in which would lift the weary soul and the mind. If out there today, there's so much talk of mental health, there's so much talk of the, of the everything, every commercial coming on. I usually pay to get rid of the commercials, but lately, uh, because it's a time where I've got to tune in for some of the UNC um, Tar Heel games, there's commercials that come on, and I am forced to put up with them for a little bit. And you see all these commercials, and, and by the end of them, if you watch them for a while, you start questioning if you need what they're proposing, whatever drug they've got to help you through that time. I just want to encourage you in the fact that all of that kind of stuff, at best, at best, is a temporary solution to our problems. The, the real solution for the majority of man's mental, and, uh, and, and I think they're significant, right? Living in a world uh, with difficulty and trauma and war and all types of crisis and crazy people running countries and all that kind of stuff, it can make you a little downcast. And when you feel that way, I would encourage you, rather than running towards what the world humanistically is offering you to fix your problem, that you would first run to the cross and you would run to chapters 5 through 8. I hope that, that our success will be given, that God will bless us, the work of our hands in this pulpit, that chapters 5 through 8 becomes the place that Catherine Lake Baptist Church goes when we are struggling in our minds and in our hearts and in our emotions. Because this is, this is what settles the Christian ultimately. And I would encourage you, uh, if you're in that case especially, and you feel the pressures of this world and the difficulties and the, um, the stress that maybe is bringing you deeply down and you're losing a bit of fire in your step, um, that you would listen very intently as we study 
through these chapters because they, I believe, offer a great solution for our lives. So this therefore matters, doesn't it? This therefore is that for all who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone now have this, which is stated by Paul. And it says, it, literally, the, if you were to read the Greek out in order, the word order, it says, justified. That's the first word. Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So just, when, when, when that's put first in the original, it means the emphasis is on that. And, and briefly, justification means that you are forgiven all your sins, and you have all you've been declared righteous. You have all his righteousness on your account. There's been a an imputation, which is a, a mathematical term. There's been credited to your account all the righteousness of the Lord, and all your debt and all your guilt has been taken off and placed on Christ. That's why he died, and he could bear that eternally on the cross. He could bear the full weight of that because he was fully God or truly God and truly man. We say truly God, truly man is a little more accurate way to say that we believe He's fully God, fully man. Is that you have Him, He's truly God, truly man, meaning He can be our substitute, being fully God to handle the weight of our sin and also to be our substitute as man. So that's the idea of justification. It's a, it's a legal matter and an accounting matter. And how did it come? By faith. Faith not as a work, but faith as a, a complete dependent look to Christ, to God outside of you for salvation. A complete dependence, a complete resting upon. It even speaks sometimes to uh, put your faith upon. The word is upon the Lord Jesus Christ or to believe into. And um, thankful for theologians like Richard Gaffin. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson and others have pointed out this idea that within chapters 5 through 8, it's union with Christ. You have been united to Him. You are one in Him. His Spirit has become one with your spirit. There's this union. And because of this union, um, all these things are yours. Where Christ died, you died with Him. When Christ rose, you rose with Him. We'll see that especially in uh, the argument of chapter 6. You can look down there already in verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And um, today's the day of rabbit trails. I'm just, my aim was to, to introduce this text. So I'm just going places. When you look at this idea of union, uh, buried... One, he's buried. He's put in a tomb. He's placed in a tomb and buried. Um, and we're buried with him. And we die with him. And we're raised with him. All those things matter. All those things matter in the Christian life. One day we'll be buried. One day we will rise. All will rise. Some, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And all will stand before the judgment seat of the Lord. And um, if you're questioning issues about burial, I'd encourage you to read an article I just wrote on this issue. It did some historical research on why it matters to bury and uh, why it's important. 
And uh, I just did some research on that because I get a lot of questions about burial and cremation. But the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is commended um, in the burial of the bodies whenever possible. Whenever possible. But it's comforting to us that we know that in battles and in difficulties where the bodies are completely obliterated, uh, there's great comfort in the fact that he will raise those bodies, right? So in, in, in one sense, it doesn't matter, right, what happens. But there is a sense it does. It does. And there's some responsibility that, that we need to think about in what we convey because it matters what you do today. It matters how you live your life. It matters what you do with your body today. So it does matter, but those things outside of your control are covered under the grace of God. And I would, I would encourage you to do some walking alongside me in that study that I posted. It's up today on um, the Symphonia Doctrine. You can look at that. Um, so back to the text. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, this is vital. This is vital when it comes to justification. Again, I've explained the, the, the manuscript issues. I'm taking uh, the contextual, contextual authority here that this is not let us. This is we have peace with God. If one is justified by faith in Christ alone, it's not that we need to get this peace. This peace is ours in Christ Jesus. He gives as the world doesn't give. He gives His peace, not in a way that the world gives. It has to be different. He gives a peace that is forever and increasing because it says that the government here is on His shoulders. The, the King, the Lord of glory, as Isaiah uh, predicted. And the increase of that government and His peace, there'll be no end. So it's a very hopeful trajectory for this peace. It's given. It's ours. It's increasing. It's a peace that's not like the world gives. Well, how did the world give? Well, at the time, they had what was called the Pax Romana. That's the, the, the context in which this is written. And the Pax Romana means the peace of Rome. And it was this idea that the whole world was under one nation. The whole world was unified under the empire of Rome. They were one people. They were one communion. There was nothing more communistic than the Roman Empire. And there's a move to try to move humanity back to that. But we have, uh, we have some very, very strong evidence that that will never happen. We have some rock-solid, unshakable certainty <laughs> that that is not going to be successful. And... You say, Pastor, where, where is that at? Because I, I would like to know how we can be certain that the efforts of the humanists today to recreate some sort of communistic empire where we are all under a nation and there's this temporary peace, how, how can we know that that's really impossible for humanity to really achieve and the reason we can know is because of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 lays out very clearly the vision that was given there to Nebuchadnezzar and that Daniel interpreted the dream. And he described there to be this statue which is pictured as one man. 
And it says there, if you remember, there's a head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar liked that because kings love to be pumped up about who they are. They're the head and they're of gold. They really enjoy that idea. And then you go down, um, you go down to that. In fact, I'll just, I'll just go there and, and read a little bit of it to remind us of what he says and what that vision sets forth in history of Daniel. <clears throat> this was the dream we see here. Uh, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, verse 31, the image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest of arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly clay. Just mark that down. That's Rome. Rome was pictured as, as the fourth empire, partly, partly there of iron, partly of clay, which you can already pick out. That doesn't mix really well together. And so as you looked, a stone was cut out with no hum, by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone struck the image, became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. Okay, there's the picture. Here's the explanation. So you think, okay, it's not because we're really ingenious about this. We know what it means. We know what it means because God told us what it means. He says here, this was the dream. Now we will tell you the king, its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. That's your fourth empire. Um, and as you saw, the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But, and there's a, a footnote there, alternate translation, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. In the days, and in the days of those kings, notice the time period. It says, in the days these empires exist, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. This is world history here. It will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. So there's not something coming after some other kingdom, some other empire that's going to rule the world. This is the final kingdom. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms. It shall bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces in the pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. As a Christian believer, 
I accept that. That's world history. That means I, I, I believe these things because this is what Christ came to do. You read through Daniel, you'll find very, very crystal clear that we see the one to come has come. Right? The one to come in the Lord Jesus Christ is called the stone. The children of Israel in the wilderness even said that they had this rock there and it was identified in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians as Christ. And all through the Bible, Old and New Testament, all the way through, there's this consistency. There's absolutely no doubt whatsoever when it comes to the Christian faith, we're talking about Christ and His kingdom. And once this kingdom has come, and He has been said to be seated at the right hand of the Father on high, and He is ruling and reigning now. There's a lot of uh, perplexity about that, that some people are waiting for Christ to reign, and some people believe that He is reigning, and the Reformed faith has consistently confessed that He is reigning now. He, from the ascension and is taking the throne, kings take a throne in order to reign. Took that throne. He has all authority. If you couldn't have any more clarity, you have all authority in heaven and on earth given to Him. And therefore, He commissions His people, the to-be kings and to-be queens, who will reign with Him one day. And I think the other error is we might think we are reigning. That's a big mistake. Alright, Paul, Paul rebukes that. It's called an over-realized eschatology. It's this idea that uh, we are reigning now. Um, and brothers and sisters, yeah, if this is, if this is it, <clears throat> we're most to be pitied, right? There, there's got to be a day where it says we will reign with Him and we will judge even angels, right? So that's clear in Scripture. But Christ is reigning, and because He's reigning, and we are commissioned as His ambassadors in this world, and our, our success is certain because this kingdom is the kingdom that will outlast all kingdoms, and this is the kingdom responsible for bringing Rome down. Where is Rome at today? Destroyed. That's what Augustine writes about in a thick book to try to explain to the people the city of God against the pagans. That's what he's writing about. He's trying to explain from a distance, having moved away from that place, some sense of hope for the people as they see the great empire come crushing down. But that's what prophecy indicated would happen. It has happened. We're not waiting for that to happen. We're not waiting for another empire. We're in the final empire. If we're in Christ, justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the peace of Rome physically ended in history when the Jewish wars began around A.D. 60s, right? Which puts it, this book being written at most, at most like four or five years before all that happens. And therefore, you literally have these things being written in the context of the Pax Romana where people said and they understood the only peace they knew and that they supposedly enjoyed, though it was a false peace, was the peace that was offered to them through the state, through the empire. It was peace with Caesar. It was peace with Rome. It was peace through the Roman Empire. What does Paul say here? This peace is unshakably certain, unlike, unlike this false temporary peace that comes from the state. This is peace 
with God. And see, we can be so topsy-turvy about the things of our lives right now because we see every day hitting the news, hitting the social feeds, hitting somehow the information spectrums of our lives, and we are constantly bombarded with all the instability. But the good news is when it comes to where we are with God, it's unshakable. It's certain. And the history is even certain as we've seen another time, another place. What we're talking about here is where are we with God? And there's an unshakable certainty about the fact that we have been justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a peace with Rome. It's not a peace with any state. It's not a peace with any empire. It's peace with God. And people, people need to be reminded, you and me people need to be reminded that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that we have this peace. And this peace with God is vastly superior. Vastly superior in the sense that it lasts and it cannot be taken away. It's not like the world gives. It's not the peace, the peace of Rome that crumbles. The peace that's offered based on false unity. It's, it's a peace it's made with the God who is at war with men. You see, if you're going to get consumed with a war, if you, really, if you really should be concerned with any war, it should be the fact that God is at war with all those who are not justified. That's the war that should unnerve us if we are not in Christ. Because... Peace with God is essential there. If you drop down, that's the Bible speaks this way. It says that while we were enemies and before we become Christians, we are enemies of God. And God is at war with us and He makes peace by dying, His Son dying on a cross for us enemies. Again, we, we can't jumpstart to the whole text there, but you get the idea. Supporting this idea of peace with God, you have to have the fact there was a war that was brought to an end in the life of the believer. And there's no chance, no ability for there to ever be enmity again with this sort of solution. There has been a complete justification of the sinner by faith. And notice it is... Through the Lord Jesus Christ, if it was through the state, if it was through the humanistic efforts or through the ability for governments to bring the world together under one nation, one commune, if that was the place that we were to find peace, it would be at best only temporary. But historically, we know in the time period we're in and the prophecies that have been fulfilled, we know with absolute certainty there isn't any of that to come. He ends the war. This is the war that ends all wars. He died for the sins of the people. He set up His kingdom. And Rome came crashing down. Both, both Jerusalem first that was riding on the back of the Rome as a harlot and Rome itself. Both. Both are depicted in the Bible 
as being futile and coming to an end. It was, uh, it was in the book that helped me so much with getting a view on the world and, and of Satan's role in all these things. Um, it, was, it was such a good book on victory in Jesus. And, um, and in dealing with this matter of, of the reality of Jerusalem being judged, which is largely what a lot of New Testament letters are pointing to, the day of the Lord is literally the day they're going to see in their day. And then also there's, there's evidence, and Bonson takes the idea in Revelation that around chapter 10, the little scroll, there's an indication of the prediction of the fall of Rome. These are historical events predicted in the Bible. And if you didn't have that, because there's others that take a, a little different role in this, you have Daniel chapter 2. Very clear. The lasting peace comes from the final kingdom and that final kingdom has come. He said it was at hand, right? Again and again. That kingdom has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to our lives and for the benefit of our souls. It is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I would challenge you to really think through if you have that peace. If you have that peace, the ultimate joy, the, the lasting joy that is available, um, it could be the idea that, yes, we can exhort each other to have this joy because we have the peace that has been provided us through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in justification. It's an unshakable peace. Whereas even on our best or worst day, if we are at our worst, you know, you wonder, how do you, how can, how do you know you're going to be able to put one foot in front of the other in the years and days to come? It's this. It's the fact that this peace is absolutely secure. This peace that's with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that throughout this text, through our Lord Jesus Christ is where all these blessings come. It's not through some other human being on earth. And it's not through some other celestial being in heaven. It's none other than through the second person of the Trinity, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the problem with looking towards other means to deal with our difficulties. Some people will turn to drugs and drinking in order to try to drown out these things and to stop hearing the noise of what disturbs their peace experientially. But what we're talking about today is, is not an experiential peace necessarily. You may at times not feel the experience that's congruent with this peace that's given to us. You should. And that's why Scripture is written and proclaimed so that you would. But regardless of how you feel, what Paul is saying is you have this peace. It's someone coming and saying, this is yours. Did you know that this is in your inheritance and it's given to you now? You don't have to wait for this. This is an objective fact that you, you have this peace. You're not... You're not 
having it just because you feel it. You have this regardless of how you feel today. If you're a Christian, if you've been born again, if your desires of your heart have changed to love God and to love His people, then you have this peace regardless of wherever your emotions are in this given moment. And I find that to be just absolutely vital. Because oftentimes we will be stirred off course by our emotions. Ups, downs, and in-betweens. But see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is showing to us what we have. And we have a peace that is not dependent on how we feel. It's totally dependent on what Christ has done. The therefore is underscoring for you and for me today. He has done the work. He has achieved the salvation. We have received the gift by faith in Him alone. So I said one verse. Success if we get to that. We're successful. Let's stand together and pray. Our Father, thank You for Your Word. It exceeds, surpasses our expectations. We could never come up with what You have put down, what You have breathed out. We couldn't live by bread alone, so You gave us Your Word. We live by every word that proceeds from Your mouth. And this is a good word, Lord, to know. A peace that's objective, that is a peace based on what Christ has done for us. A peace that is not changed by how we feel or by what we do, but completely dependent on what You've done for sinners who believe in You, who have believed Your Word. Lord, we pray You would teach us, for we have one teacher whose name is Jesus by His Spirit, and we pray that in these chapters as we work through, if we work through these, that we would do so with dependence on your Holy Spirit and trust in your Son and glory to your name. Father, as we come to really represent the true community, the true unity we have in Christ at this table that's been purchased by his broken body and his blood shed for us, our Lord Jesus, your Son, Lord, we pray that we would put on these meaningful signs of the work of Christ and be nourished and strengthened thereby. And that we who are called your children and given the right to such would take joy in the gospel. And those who in conscience are unable to say they're yours or to know they're yours, Father, that they would labor to look to Christ today and lay themselves fully at your mercy so that they would be able to experience the peace that exceeds our understanding. We love you, Father, and we praise you. And we commit our whole selves to you now in this time of remembrance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.